This morning, we're continuing our study of the book of Proverbs, and as you can see by where we are in the book, we're just about done with the book. Next week will be our final week in the book of Proverbs, but today we're in Proverbs chapter 30, and we're going to be looking at the first nine verses of Proverbs 30, and there's a variety of things that you'll notice that I think are beneficial in this particular portion of Scripture, but I think an overall theme that really can capture our minds and capture our attention and that we can find direct benefit from in our walk with the Lord is this idea of becoming highly aware of God's presence. And I think that's illustrated for us extremely well in these opening nine verses of Proverbs chapter 30. So if you would take your Bibles and turn there with me. Proverbs 30, starting with verse 1, this is what it says. The words of Augur, son of Jekeh, the oracle. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of of my God. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to look at this portion of the book of Proverbs together this morning and to be reminded of something that you desire from us, that, that you desire that we, we live with a sense that you are present with us. You want us to become highly aware of your presence. And as we look at the words that are mentioned here in this portion of Scripture, we can see what it looks like to live with a high degree of awareness of your presence. And so we pray that that would be a discipline, that that would be uh, something that matters to us, that you foster in our daily lives, and that we would put you first in all areas, desiring to live in close proximity to you. So, Lord, we pray that you'd prepare our minds and prepare our hearts to receive the teaching of your word together this morning, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, when we look through Scripture, and you can see this all throughout the Scriptures, regardless of where you are in the Scripture, but it becomes very clear that there are certain expectations that God has of His children. There are certain things that He desires of us. He wants us to trust in Him. That becomes very clear. You can see that in the earliest portions of Scripture all the way up to the end. He wants us to trust in Him. He also wants us to obey Him. And I think that obedience is the fruit of genuine trust. I think that if I tell you that I trust the Lord, but then I just basically live life under my own guidance instead of obeying His guidance, that probably shows you that I trust me more than I trust Him. But He wants us to trust Him. The fruit of that trust is obedience to Him. He wants us to speak of Him. So as He gives us opportunities to proclaim the truth of the gospel, as He gives us opportunities to testify to the fact that He's changed our heart and changed our life, He wants us to share that with others. It's a, the means He has ordained for the truth of His gospel to be spread. 
He also wants us to find rest in Him. I think many people spend their lives trying to find rest in something, but most of the things that we're trying to find rest in leave us feeling rather dejected after a period of time because we discover that it doesn't work. But ultimate rest, ultimate peace for our souls, we find through Jesus Christ. And so that's something the Lord wants us to understand and actually seek. But something else that he illustrates for us, again, no matter where you are in the Scriptures, is that he wants our faith to blossom from infancy to maturity. So as you and I know the Lord longer and longer through more and more experiences, he wants us to go from being infant believers to being mature believers who continue to invest in their ongoing growth. And I think there are multiple aspects of spiritual maturity that are useful to observe. But one of the most obvious marks of spiritual maturity, at least in my opinion, is the fact that those who tend to grow spiritually mature also tend to be people who become highly aware of God's presence. And what I mean by that is this. They notice His hand at work all around them. And they're continually aware of the fact that He is with them. And they don't treat Him like He's off at a distance, or like He's just a concept, or like He's a theory, or like He lives on the other side of outer space, but doesn't live right here in this room. A person who grows spiritually mature begins to understand that God is present with them. And that's something he communicates about himself, but he also demonstrates that in a variety of ways. Now, the unbelieving world has no concept of this worldview. The unbelieving world does not share this line of thinking. If they're even willing to entertain the thought that God exists, they certainly are not living like he's near. But for those who understand the gospel, and for those who rejoice in the fact that Jesus Christ took on flesh and dwelt among us, and promises to be with us always, we can become highly aware of God's presence, and we can live with the confidence that He's near, that He, again, that He's not at the other side of outer space, that He's right here in this room. So in the portion of Scripture that we just read together, and we'll visit it sections at a time as we kind of talk through it this morning, but I just want to show us, and I want us to just kind of marinate in the thought of the presence of God and what it looks like to live a a life that's highly aware of His presence, and how that impacts the thinking and how that impacts the faith of someone who truly embraces that thought. And one of the things that we're going to do as we work our way through those nine verses is I'm just going to offer some thoughts in question form, because I just want us to be asking these questions as we look at some of the things that are stated here in this portion of Scripture. And the first question is this, How conscious are you of God's holiness? Let me reread the first three verses. It says this. The words of Augur, son of Jekah, the oracle, the man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. And by the way, even even before I continue finishing that, do you ever pray like that and just say, Lord, I'm pretty weary right now, right? I think a lot of us can identify with that opening statement. But then he goes on, he says, surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Now, let me pause there for a second. Up to this point in the book of Proverbs, as we've been studying it, we've been looking at thoughts that were communicated by Solomon. Solomon was the son of King David. Solomon was someone whom the Lord raised up to also be king over Israel. But the end of the book of Proverbs, as we get to chapter 30 and as we get to chapter 31... The end of the book incorporates the words of others as well, including 
Augur, who's mentioned here in this particular portion of Scripture. And people speculate who this guy happens to be. I would suspect that most people, even people that are familiar with Scripture, would struggle to remember who wrote Proverbs chapter 30. If you just randomly ask somebody, who wrote Proverbs chapter 30? They'd be like, I don't, didn't Solomon write the whole thing? It's like, no, the last two, they're, they're different. Did you notice that? The last two are different. But people speculate who this guy may have been. Some people suggest that these may have also been the words of Solomon, but the truth is none of us knows who Augur was. Some people say maybe that was just a nickname for Solomon. I don't really think it was. I don't, I don't think that's what the Scripture's getting at. But the little that we know about this guy is included in these opening verses here of, uh, of, of Proverbs 30 and, and you know this section as we kind of work our way through it. But one thing that can be said of Augur, even though we know very little about him, was that he was somebody who was very conscious of God's holiness. You could see that in the way he phrases things here in these opening verses. He could clearly see a difference between God's abilities and man's abilities. There was a very stark difference between the two. He understood that God is distinct from his creation. And so this proverb begins in a very interesting manner. And you have Augur as he's basically introducing himself to those who would read this. He doesn't boast about himself. He doesn't brag about himself. He's obviously not full of himself, right? He doesn't list his credentials. He doesn't list his accomplishments. He doesn't list the letters that come after his name or anything like that. In fact, he practically demeans himself as this, uh, this proverb opens up. And he, he does so as he's taking a close examination of his life and as he's contrasting his motives and his struggles with the holiness of God. And there is a big contrast, isn't there? I mean, if any of us do the same thing that Augur is doing in this portion of Scripture, we would notice a big contrast between our struggles and our motives at times. And they, at times, quite literally contrast the heart and the holiness of God. And when you look at Augur's words here, he speaks of himself as being weary. He speaks of himself as being worn out. I don't know if you get... Well, perfect timing. I don't know if you could hear in my voice, I was just about to say, I guess you obviously can, if it's just, uh, but I had a very busy week, did a, a lot of talking this week, my voice was kind of giving out on me yesterday, and I thought, oh, no sweat, I just have to preach tomorrow, you know, who needs a voice when you have to preach, right? And, uh, and I was saying to my wife yesterday, I was like, boy, I feel real tired, this week was just so full of uh, just so much. And I thought, but you know what? I, I have a few good hours here. I'm going to really rest up and, and all that. And I thought I was going to rest up, and I didn't rest up like I thought I was going to rest up. And then when I woke up this morning, I thought, well, we, we've merged the services together again, so I only have to preach once tomorrow. So, so you know, th- things are going to be fine. And then when I woke up today, I felt like I was in slow motion, and I thought, this isn't good. <laughs> I'm weary. But I, then I thought, well, okay, it's Maybe good to be a little weary when you preach on weariness, right? It could be, my life can be an illustration, right? But the truth is, I, I get the impression that Augur wasn't just like a little bit tired from a busy week. That wasn't what he was getting at. I, I think this was like when you go through a long stretch of weariness, when you go through a long stretch of having something weigh on your mind and weigh on your heart, that kind of weariness, right? Not just, not just like temporary fatigue, but this is something, this is like, like, emotional and spiritual angst and pain that I think that he was experiencing. And he speaks of himself as being weary and worn out. And he even, I mean, you know, I don't know what you thought when we first read his words here together, but I mean, he's pretty harsh on himself. He, he says, you know, things like that he lacks understanding, that he lacks wisdom, 
And he seems to be implying here that he has just a, uh, a knowledge of God that's just like a drop in the bucket compared to all there really is to know about God. And I think that's probably true of us as well. I mean, we've no, we know what God has revealed to us. We know what Scripture reveals as the Lord inspired Scripture to be revealed. But I, I'm certain that there are going to be so many things that are just going to uh, just seem amazing to us when we see the Lord face to face someday and we'll, and, and we'll just stare at Him and praise Him and, and look with amazement at all the additional things about the Lord that we just didn't even think to think about during this particular season. And Augur was really wrestling with that. He was wrestling with the thought that, do I know God to the depths that he can be known? Do I understand who he really is and how he really operates? He's so different from me. He's so uh, contrasting to how I think and how I operate in so many respects. And I think there's a lot of useful things that we can learn from Augur's opening statements here. And while I don't think this scripture is encouraging us to demean ourselves, I don't think the takeaway from this is that we go home today and just tell ourselves how terrible we are, right? So that's not the takeaway. If that was your takeaway, I want to replace that. I don't think that's the idea here. But I think it's beneficial to look at this because it's demonstrating the importance of being conscious of God's holiness and just being amazed with how wonderful and amazing and different God truly is. Because the more conscious we are of God's holiness, the more visible our sinfulness is going to become to us, and the more aware we grow of our sinfulness, the more we will begin to understand our need for Jesus to bridge the gap from our sinfulness to the holiness of God. And that's exactly what Jesus came to this earth to do. So that you and I can have confident access to the Father, because Jesus bridges the gap from our sinfulness to the holiness of God. Jesus doesn't leave us in our sin. And then one of the amazing things is that after we come to faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit does His work to sanctify us, which means to develop holiness in your life, in my life. He's sanctifying us. He's setting us apart as holy. He's producing holiness in our lives. Even though at one point we were completely dominated by sin, now we have this amazing work of God happening in our lives to make us holy like God is holy. So if you're amazed with God's holiness, it should also amaze you that Jesus Christ came to this earth to bridge the gap from your sinfulness to God's holiness, and that the Holy Spirit is likewise seeking to make you holy, so that you would more and more and more reflect the heart of God in your day-to-day life. We're being transformed into men and women who can reflect the heart of God in every context that He places us in. So how conscious are we of God's holiness? Again, I think Augur was quite conscious of God's holiness, and his words and his life illustrate the importance of that. Well, there's another question I think it's useful to ask when we look at this portion of Scripture, and that's this. Do you appreciate what only God can do? Because there are certain things that only God can do. Do you appreciate what only God can do? Look at what it says in verse 4. You have Augur saying this. He says, Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. It's an interesting portion of scripture, isn't it? It's very emphatic the way he says it here too. Anyone ever have the privilege of of spending a day working with one of your grandparents? Do you ever have a day like that? 
you know, especially when you were kind of at a young age. That's a, that's a real precious thing. That, that was an experience I was given multiple times. But when I was in ninth grade, my father and my uncle, they partnered together to buy a new, larger grocery store. So they each had individual stores. My dad ran Stongy's Market on Cedar Avenue in Scranton, and it was primarily a local family grocery store with a great meat selection, great meat department. My uncle ran Stongy's Quick Serve on Bernie Avenue in Music, which was just about three miles down the road. And that was more of a convenience store. And they thought, hey, it's kind of like go big or go home. You know, let's, let's really combine our forces and let's get a, a big one. And so they reached out to a man. His name was Ray Daring, and he owned a large grocery store in Dallas, Pennsylvania, and they made an agreement to buy Daring's. And they had this, now they had this large grocery store to add to their, to their mix. And I remember at the time, after they bought that, because it was so much bigger than the stores that they had previously owned, it required, obviously, a lot more manpower to run. And anyone who's grown up in a family business knows that when you grow up in a family business, if they need help on the fly, it's you, right? It's you. It's not somebody else. They, like, he knew he could just tell me, hey, by the way, you're working at Daring's on Saturday. I am? How am I getting there? It's like, you'll figure it out. I'm getting there somehow, right? So frequently, other family members were, were uh, required to assist, and I would get recruited all the time. I didn't mind it. I liked it. And, but my grandfather, who was retired, would get recruited all the time as well. And then sometimes they would team me up with him. And so here we were, the bookends of the generations, right? And it's like, all right, ninth grade John and retired grandpa, you guys will align today, and here's your task. And so I remember one particular Saturday, my grandfather and I were working together, and the task that my father gave us was to create these new circular stands that would just display different foods like cookies and things like that on an end cap. But we had to build these things out of wood. And I remember looking at it and thinking to myself, how do you get a perfect circle out of wood? They had to be circular. How do we get a perfect circle out of wood? And I remember looking at all this stuff and just thinking, I have no idea how to do this. I mean, the tools are here. I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to make it a perfect circle. I'm thinking, you know, I could take the saw and just kind of circular. Like, I couldn't figure it out in my mind. Don't laugh at me. I was in ninth grade. Come on, I know how to do it now. I didn't know how to do it then. But that's why I was teamed up with my grandfather, right? My grandfather knew how to do it. And uh, he, didn't, he didn't tell me ahead of time what he was going to do. He just kind of got to work. He got the plywood. He put it out. This was his solution. There's other ways you could do this. But this is what he decided to do. He took a, a thin board, and he nailed it into the center there. And then he took another nail, and he put it in the end of, of uh, that thin board that was on top. Just a real thin board. That's all it was. And he just had it poke out just a tiny bit. And so the center nail was like the, the pivot. You know, it would pivot on that. And he just took it, and he scratched a perf- he just moved it in a circle, and it scratched a perfect circle through that little nail that was sticking out of the top, scratched a perfect circle on that, that plywood that we then cut out from there. And I remember looking at this and looking at him and, and saying, Grandpa, you're a genius. Like, I was so stumped on how I was going to get a perfect circle, and I watched him do this with like no thought at all, and I was just amazed. I was highly impressed that he knew how to do that. And I conveyed it, and it's stuck in my mind all this time. And I was thinking about that when I looked at this portion of Scripture this week in preparation for today, because when I look at this portion of Scripture, I think Augur's mind was triggered like that. 
He was highly impressed with the work of the Lord, knowing he couldn't do that stuff. Only the Lord could do this stuff. This is stuff only the Lord can do. There are things only the Lord can do. And Augur felt compelled to acknowledge that fact. And in fact, when, I don't know if anyone caught this when we, when, we, when we read this together, but his words are actually reminiscent of the words that the Lord spoke to Job in chapter 38 of the book of Job. Did anyone catch the similarity? Did anyone notice it? Some of you did. Let me show you a few things that are said in the book of Job. You have, Job, or you have the, the Lord speaking to Job, and he says these things of himself. When Job is kind of like wondering and trying to sort through a whole bunch of things, the Lord sets him straight. And this is how he sets him straight. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. What was the Lord revealing to Job? What was the Lord revealing, you know, that that Job's friends could finally come to understand, right? He was revealing there are things that only I can do. And isn't it amazing how we as human beings give ourselves so much credit? We give ourselves so much credit. We think we're so amazing. Now, we are pretty amazing because we are created in the image of God, but keep in mind, we are created in the image of God, and we are created, Whereas God himself is not created, he is self-existent from all eternity. And he can do the things that only he can do. And I think that it's healthy for you and I to go through our lives amazed when we think about the, the, the fact that the Lord can do things that are far beyond our cognition. And he was trying to make that clear in the book of Job. And here you have Augur wrestling with that thought and realizing there's, there's things that only God can do. And it just makes me wonder if we truly appreciate all that God can do, and all that He can, all that only He can do. Are we in awe of Him, like a ninth grader staring at his grandfather making a perfect circle out of wood? You know, do we give Him the credit that He deserves? Can we trace His hand at work? I mean, just think about this: trace His hand at work all throughout the course of our lives. What is He doing? He's leading us in certain ways. He's opening up certain doors for us. Do you ever watch the Lord open up a door for you that he convinces your heart you're supposed to walk through? Doesn't that amaze you? You know, he introduces us to people that we're supposed to meet. He equips us to do things far beyond our natural abilities to do. He orchestrates all of these things. Can I tell you a story? I I don't know. um, This just happened yesterday and a couple days before. Um, I, I, part of this past week, I was at a conference for writers and podcasters and entrepreneurs, and we were trying to build into each other and encourage one another. And the other day, um, one of the guys at the conference, somebody that I've been friends with for a little while, he said to me, he said, you know what, um, I work for a newspaper and I've had to report on some very terrible things. Why does God allow things like that to happen? You know, he said, if, he said, if, if God... If God is who you say he is, because this guy knew I was a pastor, if God is who you say he is, why does God allow things like that to happen? And I said, well, I can give you the answer, but if you, I don't know that you're, you don't seem terribly open to receiving it right now, but I could, I could share with you what I think is true, and maybe it'd be food for thought, or maybe you'll just think I'm nuts. And so I shared, and he's like, yeah, I'm not convinced. And I was like, all right, that's fine. So interesting story. 
Um, yesterday, I was driving home on the turnpike. I had a five-hour drive, and if you're driving across the state, you discover when you're, uh, when you're on the turnpike that there are certain spots on the turnpike where you're in the middle of nowhere, like literally like nowhere. The only thing that's there is the turnpike. And, um, and so I was in one of those spots, and I look over on the side of the road, several hours from where the conference was, but I'm still several hours from home, and I look over on the side of the road, and I see that guy broken down on the side of the road. And uh, I was like, wait a second. And I pull over, and then I called his phone, and I said, hey, is that your Nissan Rogue? And he's like, yeah. I was like, all right, do you see the Civic that's backing up in front of you? He's like, yeah. I said, okay, that's me. And so I pulled up to him. And I said, what happened? He's like, I think my alternator went. And he's like, I'm in the middle of nowhere. And there was a cornfield there. I was like, oh, well, the good news is if you wait a few months, you'll have something to eat. Because look, there's cornfields all there. And he's like, ha ha, really funny. And I was like, well, how about this? I'm just going to hang out for a little while. Let's just hang out until you're, you know, the, the tow truck is able to come and get you out of here. He's like, I don't know where I'm going to be for the next little bit because there's literally nothing here. It took 50 miles. They had to tow him 50 miles from there to get him to a mechanic. 50 miles. So literally nowhere. But I, I said, well, I'm just going to hang out with you until, until um, you know, the truck comes. And I said, do you have any food or anything with you? And he, he said, no. And I said, no sweat. Someone had given me a pack of M&Ms uh, like, not too long before. They actually mailed them to me from Wisconsin as a joke. And I was eating them as I drove. I was like, all right, they go from Wisconsin to Philly. And then I drove out to Pittsburgh. And now I was driving back. And now he's going to New York. I was like, these have become your peanut M&Ms. <laughs> And this is what he said to me. I hope he doesn't, if he listens to this recording, I hope he's gracious. It doesn't remind me that I'm sharing this story. But he said, he said, huh, I gave you all that grief the other day about your belief in God. And here I am stuck on the side of the road. And who does the Lord send to hang out with me and help me pass the time but the pastor that I gave grief the other day? And he said, you know, I think he, he, and I think he meant this. He said, I think I'm going to have to rethink some of the things I said to you the other day about God. I'm going to have to rethink that. And I, I thought, interesting. So again, God does what God does. God orchestrates things that only God can orchestrate. And if you're living, just, if you just try and live right in the center of his presence, being mindful of the fact that God is right there, you will get to watch him orchestrate things that you'll realize, I am just along for a ride. And if I just be open to what he's directing and leading and just get in the habit of saying yes, weird stuff like that's going to keep happening to the point that it just stops being weird. And it starts to be like, of course this happens. This always happens. It happens all the time. You just look for it, right? Augur was growing aware of that. I want to grow aware of that. You should want to grow aware of that. All of us should want to grow aware of that because what happens is it brings a lot of joy, right? It's just a lot of joy. Once the Lord got that straight in my mind, I thought this is a very joyful ride to be on, being aware of the things that only God can do. But here's something else that I think will help us if we're trying to, if we genuinely want to live with a sense of God's presence. We got to come to a spot where we just stop questioning everything He says. I think as human beings, we're just skeptics. You know, we just, we, it's like we question every, every, like everything, right? So are you confident that the Word of God is true? Look at what Augur said about his confidence in the Word of God. See if it has any impact on what we think as well. But he says, every, this is verse 5 and verse 6, he says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. 
So again, as Augur continued to contemplate God's nature, as he continues to contemplate God's abilities, what he does is he also expresses confidence in the Word of God. And he made the assertion that every word that comes from the mouth of God is eventually proven true. I just heard a, a this is a, uh, it's kind of interesting because my understanding is that this was a non-believing archaeologist, but you know what he said? He said, every archaeological find that we have found in the Middle East where the, the stories of the scripture took place, he said, every archaeological discovery we've ever found in that area, every single one, there's no exception to this, he said, not a single one contradicts a thing in the Bible. I thought that was very interesting. I just heard that this past week. Not a single archaeological find ever in the history of the Middle East contradicts anything in Scripture. That's fascinating. So see if that's true. Do a little research on that. That's what he said. I thought that was interesting. But here you have, you have Augur. He's making the assertion that every word that comes from the mouth of God is eventually proven true. He cautioned us not to add to his words, not to try and distort what the Lord had communicated. We're called to trust the revealed word of God, that it's accurate that it's reliable. And I have to say, one of the best advantages that the Lord's given me is the blessing of having grown up in a Bible-teaching church. I grew up in a Bible-teaching church that really emphasized this and then supported this in other ways, and it really helped me to understand these things, and then that was followed up by going to a scripturally faithful university, having the privilege, it was like a one-two punch in my life that really drilled some of these things into my mind and into my heart. And the combination of those two factors plus several others gradually helped me develop a deep respect for the teaching of Scripture, even at an early age. And so I'm grateful that our church gets to be another link in that chain as we seek to to instill confidence in the Word of God through what gets proclaimed from this pulpit, but also what gets taught through our children's programs and the different things that we put out online. The confidence we have in the Word of God can become something that's helpful to somebody else as they seek to become inquisitive about what, what the Word of God actually says. And the ultimate result, when you go through Scripture, what it will do is it will point you to Jesus Christ. And the secret to understanding the Scripture is to eventually ask the question, what does this have to do with Jesus? How is this pointing me to Him? The Scripture actually refers to Jesus as the Word made flesh. The Word of God. The Word of God is pointing you and me to Jesus Christ and helping us realize that He is the one that we ultimately need. And the Word of God's useful for all sorts of things. I, I love the familiar portion of Scripture from 2 Timothy 3, where it just starts listing all the ways that the Word, that the word of God is useful to us. It tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Do you believe that the Lord has a work and a purpose specifically for you? If you read Scripture, you'll discover He absolutely does. And that's not just a collective statement, that's also an individual statement. He has an individual work for every single one of us in this room. And if we want to be equipped for the work that He's called us to do, That equipping, Scripture tells us, will come from understanding the Scripture, applying it to our lives, being obedient to the Lord as He directs us, and just living it out and sharing it with others. But if we want to be equipped for the works that the Lord's called us to do, that equipping will ultimately come as we apply the Scripture and the teaching of Scripture to our day-to-day walk. Augur was someone who was convinced of that. I think it's the Lord's desire for you and for me that we become convinced of that as well. 
But there's one other question that I want to pose to us today as we kind of wrap this all up. And that comes to our prayer life. And this is where the section we're looking at today kind of wraps up as well. But what are you requesting from God? You know, if we're trying to live with this mindset that we are in God's presence, we're trying to live with the mindset that God is not far, but rather He is near. Okay, so if He's near to you, how do you communicate with Him? If He's near to you, what are you requesting of Him? So Augur gives his list, verse 7 down to verse 9. He says, Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So this is pretty neat because when you look throughout the book of Proverbs, you don't find other prayers up to this point. And then you get to chapter 30 and all of a sudden you have the the proverb breaking out into prayer. And in Proverbs 30 here, verses 7 through 9, you have Augur openly praying to the Lord. And again, he's making some very specific requests, but his requests are not like the kinds of things that most people are requesting of God. You have Augur making requests that actually show that he's thinking on a deeper level. And I think he's thinking with more maturity than many people express in their times of prayer. Most of us just pray for comfort, right? We just pray for comfort, the relief of pain, and it's fine to pray for the relief of pain. I don't think that that's bad to pray, but I think that it's incomplete if that's the only thing that we ever request of God. I think there's more that we could add to our prayer life, and Augur gives us a great example of what that looks like. And so you have Augur praying here that he wouldn't deny the Lord. He doesn't want to deny the Lord in his words. And he doesn't want to deny the Lord in his lifestyle. So both areas are key in his prayer here. He also requests that falsehood would be kept far from him. It's like, I don't want any of that garbage in my mind. I don't want any of that garbage in my life. Keep falsehood far away from me. He also asks the Lord to help him to be content with his needs being met instead of drifting toward poverty or drifting toward riches. It's like, I don't want to go to either extreme. I don't want to be... Uh, consumed with poverty, and I also don't want to idolize riches. I just want to be content with what you supply for me. I think that's a great prayer. I don't think that that's something that we often think to pray about enough. But it makes me wonder, what are we currently praying for? Sometimes when I read a portion of Scripture like this, I find it very convicting because I think I pray way too much for my own comforts. And I don't really want to spend the bulk of my prayer just praying for my own comforts. I think there are deeper level things that I need to be praying for, deeper level things that we need to be praying for, right? So are we seeking contentment or are we seeking greed? Are we seeking God's glory or are we just seeking the absence of discomfort? Which, you know, which direction are our prayers taking us? The truth is if we have Jesus, we already have what we need most in this world. So if you know Jesus, if you have Jesus, you already have what you need most in this world. And Scripture invites us to be content in Christ. So what are we requesting of God? I know one of the things that I I, I think about as a parent, um, and maybe you could identify with this, I think when you're close to your children, one of the hardest realities to accept is the fact that as your children get older, they go through a season where they don't always feel quite as close to you 
as they did when they were younger. You know, there's a little bit of a distance that sometimes creeps in, or maybe sometimes you start to feel like, are my children even still interested in having a relationship with me? Do you ever wonder stuff like that? It's like this type of stuff parents wonder, right? Uh, but frequently, what ends up happening, as I, as I you know, have seen over the course of my life, is that as they progress into those next stages that come after that, they often begin to reinvest in their relationship with you, recognizing the value of a healthy parent-child relationship. And so you kind of see that sort of thing come back. And I've seen that happen just in my own life, but I've also seen that happen in the lives of, of people that I care about. And I think our relationship with the Lord sometimes operates that same exact way. You know, during seasons of less maturity, we tend to pull away. But as we grow, we find ourselves wanting to be in His presence again and wanting to develop that relationship even more. So you can see it in how our earthly relationships operate, but I think our, our relationship with our Heavenly Father operates the same way. As we mature, we want to be in His presence. We want to spend time with Him. We want to hear what He has to say. So let me say this as we wrap up and then prepare our hearts to partake of communion together. As those who have been rescued and redeemed by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Let's dedicate ourselves to the same motive that dominated Augur's thinking. Let's become highly aware of God's presence and then commit ourselves to living in close communion with Him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, and thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to look at a portion of Scripture like this and to really think about what it, what it looks like and what it means to be highly aware of your presence. Lord, I confess to you that there have absolutely been seasons in my life where I have tried to go my own direction or live in such a way that I was treating you like you were far away instead of near. And so, Lord, I confess that to you. I repent of that, and I pray that that would be something that is not a characteristic of any present or future season of my life. But Lord, you know how we operate. You know that we start off immature and then maturity builds and grows. And and over time, you help us more and more to reflect your heart. And you help us to care about the things that you care about. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be very open to that. And Father, we're so grateful for the fact that you demonstrated to us in the most powerful way possible that you do not desire to be a distance from us. The most powerful example of that being the fact that you sent your son, who is one with you, you sent your son into this earth to take on flesh, to rescue and redeem us, to give us the opportunity to have our sin forgiven and to live in your presence for all eternity as men and women who have been reshaped by your spirit, made holy where we were once sinful, you have made us holy because our sin has been placed upon your son. And so, Father, we know that it's your desire that we remember the high price that was paid for our redemption. And so even now, as we prepare to take communion together as a church family, we pray that our minds and our hearts would be upon your Son, Jesus Christ, and all that he accomplished on our behalf, so that we could live as men and women who are highly aware of your presence with us. 
Thank you, Lord, for these reminders from your word. Thank you for inspiring Augur to write these things down and to give this proverb to us that we could meditate on today as we begin a new week. And we pray that you would be honored in the lives that we live, that we would put you first in all areas, and that it would be said of us that we were people who lived with a high awareness of your presence. We thank you for all of these things, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.